Welcome to The Five Things, This Week in Social. Each week, we bring you the latest stories in social media so you are up to date for the week ahead. Some weeks, we have to search high and low for the best stories. And some weeks, like this one, the stories are impossible to miss. Our friends Claire Heaps and Daniel Avon are back and ready for the chilly weather. Claire, hello. Hey, what's up? Glad to be here. What is the move this year? Is it a pullover or zip-up hoodie? What do you think? Pullover all the way. I haven't worn a zip-up hoodie since like 2009. So <laughs> pullover all the way. All yeah. the way. Strings tied in the front also. Oh, I like that. And Daniel is here. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Joey. Good to see you. Good to speak with you. All right, Daniel, here's the question for you. Fleece or turtleneck? Fleece. I'm not Steve Jobs or the Theranos lady. I don't need a turtleneck. No turtleneck. All right. Well, I'm Joey Scarillo, and I've got plenty of hoodies, but I need more zip-ups, and I just got my first turtleneck this year, so I guess our fashion senses are completely not aligned, but that's okay. Enough about fashion. Here are the five things. First, Daniel digs into Meta's layoffs of more than 11,000 employees. Then Claire explains how moments after announcing, Elon Musk walked back the official checkmark model for Twitter. Then Daniel tells us about TikTok's new infographic outlining safety protocols for kids, teens, and parents. Then Claire is excited to tell us about Instagram rolling out post-scheduling features for creators and businesses. And finally, Daniel tells us what's up with WhatsApp communities. All right, friends, let's dive right in. Daniel, hit us with the big story. What's going on at Meta? What is going on at Meta? So on Wednesday, November 9th, and I want to be specific because these timelines have been kind of crazy across all of the social platforms recently. On November 9th, Meta, who will be talking about different capacities across today's episode, which you just mentioned, Joey, laid off 11,000 employees or 13% of their workforce. This comes just off of the news of Twitter's staffing cuts last week and snaps back in August. So it's kind of a growing trend within the social space. Fortunately for those who were laid off, there's a pretty generous severance package, 16 weeks of their base pay and two additional weeks for every year they've been at the company and six months continued health care for them and their families. The severance package seems to be indicative of all the ways in which Meta over the years has really treated their employees well. And in this news, Zuckerberg also mentioned that perks may be lessening as they cut costs to stabilize the business as it is now. So this news was broken a little bit earlier by the Wall Street Journal, and it mentioned a meeting with Zuckerberg and key executives to discuss these layoffs. Who is impacted in this? Recruitment and business teams primarily, but engineers, particularly those working on the metaverse, were largely spared. This piece about protecting the metaverse is actually quite interesting because it is definitely a personal interest of Zuckerberg, but also a big, costly, some may say speculative investment on behalf of the company. Just last month, it was reported that Reality Labs, the part of the organization charged with the metaverse, had $3.67 billion in operating losses with declining revenue after a high in Q4 of 2020. In addition to investment before revenue in the metaverse, there are 
macroeconomic factors that we're all facing into. Meta and its contemporaries are not excluded from that. Meta reported a 50% decline in profits in Q3 and versus 2021, 70% decline in stock value. All of this after some pretty substantial growth in 2021. Meta in 2021 had a trillion dollar valuation, increased its workforce by 28%. So September 2022 versus September of 2021, they had about 30% more people working at Meta. And they were obviously planning for continued growth, kind of in line with what they saw in 2021. But as the world moves a little bit more offline after the pandemic, so too dollars are kind of seeming to pull away. And we also have a recession that we're facing into. This is interesting because Meta is obviously the biggest of the social giants encompassing Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and other ventures. They're one of the last to address declining profits with reduced workforces. And in spite of some of the numbers we just discussed, they talked about what they're focusing on and what they're prioritizing from a business unit perspective. And the metaverse is still top of the list, as is advertising and AI. This show is a very strong belief in the unrealized potential of the metaverse and AI. But it is curious how long they can keep this up and doing so without seeing material fiscal impact of their investments in the metaverse. So for brands, there's not a lot that they can do at the current moment. Obviously, this is an impact on Facebook's workforce that is a result of brands pulling ad spend. So the realities of their of the brands that are pulling ad spend are kind of the same as to what Facebook meta are dealing with right now. That said, I would imagine and this is all speculation, that Meta is even more eagerly looking for partners and ways of monetizing the metaverse and AI. So could be an opportunity for brands that are poised or interested to do so and have the funds to kind of unlock it early on as Meta kind of pushes forward. That's interesting. You mentioned, Daniel, the metaverse and perhaps the slow start for the metaverse. So I'm curious, Claire, what do you think was the bigger factor in the layoffs? Was it the metaverse or Or do you think it could go even as far back as Apple's new privacy updates from about a year or so ago? I honestly think that it's probably a bunch of things. The focus that Meta is putting on the metaverse and probably pulling away from everything else that they're doing, I'm sure, is the largest factor. I think that they're just putting such large bets on this metaverse project that isn't panning out as quickly as they wanted or thought that it's sort of screwed them a little bit, to be honest. I don't think brands have really figured out a good way to enter the metaverse or use Meta's metaverse stuff. No one has really cracked this yet. And to be honest, what Meta has rolled out looks pretty schlocky. (laughs) So I just, I really just don't think it's working out for them. And I think they flew a little bit too close to the sun, but there are so many things that they've been embroiled in, in the past couple of years that I'm sure were also factors. I think that they've sort of been, they've had so many controversies and so many new updates that haven't worked. And Facebook as a platform is a little iffy right now. The audiences are a little weird on Facebook and with the political stuff going on. I just think that Meta, as an organization is sort of like the center of a million shit storms and they're sort of all just colliding at once and putting billions of dollars into an endeavor that hasn't worked yet can't be helping. Yeah, they are putting a lot of resources into something that is still unproven, but I guess they want to be the pioneers in that space. And I guess sort of is like an, a second question, but also we'll segue into our next story. Daniel, how do you see the layoffs at Meta differing from the layoffs we saw this week at 
Twitter. They are very different, the, the layoffs at Twitter versus Meta. Obviously, the scale of the layoffs from Meta is quite a bit larger than what we saw from Twitter, but as a proportion of the workforce, it's quite limited. Interestingly, in a story that we actually decided not to talk about this week, but I'll, I'll mention it, is that for some people that Twitter laid off last week, there seems to be a desire to claim back. So they may have unintentionally let people go or they're realizing that some things that from an engineering standpoint need to be done on platform can't be done without certain people. So I think that Twitter was quite hasty. This seems to be a lot more intentional. And they're thinking about the places in the organization, with exception to the metaverse, that they are not using those resources. I mentioned recruitment is something. There's a hiring freeze. So a need for recruiters is a little bit limited at this point in time. So all of that to say, I think that from a meta standpoint, it was it was more intentional and they took a more measured view of how they wanted to minimize the workforce. But all in all, it's sad. It's It's really sad for the people impacted and that part of it doesn't change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So sticking with Twitter, Claire, tell us about how Elon did a bit of an about face with his official checkmark model. Yeah, I think this is sort of just the continuation of a trend or a way of treating his new job where things are announced kind of fast and loose for whatever reason, whether it's operational or something we're not privy to. Elon rolls back what he said pretty much immediately. This has happened a couple of times, but basically there's just a lot going on with the checkmark. So I guess people saw the sort of meritocracy of the blue checkmark as elitist, whatever. Not everybody gets to be special. Elon decided to make the blue checkmark something you can pay for, $8 a month. So basically anyone can get verified if they want to um, by paying for it. But if everybody gets to be verified, the people who are within that meritocracy of, you know, being a famous person or being an organization or being someone whose likeness is likely to get copied or ripped off or whatever, those people need a different kind of checkmark to distinguish themselves from the pay, from the paid checkmark that now everybody gets. So it's literally just like the same thing just rolled up like a level. I don't know how to describe that, but now instead of there being no check mark and a blue check mark, there's a blue check mark for everybody and then a gray check mark for the people that used to have the blue check mark, which is ridiculous. It doesn't really make sense. Then a couple people got the gray, the new like you're still a celebrity kind of person check mark and then it disappeared. Elon actually responded on Marquez, the YouTuber's tweet about the check mark disappearing that he killed it. Not really sure why. And I think then they re-rolled it out just for a couple of people. It's a mess. And it doesn't really make sense to me because it is really keeping the same exact gap between users on the platform, just like in a visually different way. I think people will notice that this doesn't actually mean anything. So we'll just have to see what happens. But yeah, I don't know. I think the New York Times, certain organizations have the have the new gray check mark, but just not not everybody yet. Twitter is fluid right now. So we'll just have to wait and see. I like that analysis. I don't know a lot about Elon Musk prior to us discussing him on this podcast with his work with Tesla and SpaceX. But it sounds like 
like he's playing very fast and loose with Twitter. And I don't know if that's his like normal MO or if this is a new strategy or if this is a lack of strategy. So I'm curious, Daniel, with all these updates, trolling people and 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 responding back to other politicians and artists, do you think there is some strategy here or is it just all feeling really reactionary? What's going on at Twitter? I hate to say that I do think it is all very reactionary. I feel like he had a lot of criticisms about the platform prior to taking ownership. And some of those were addressed in the purchasing process. But now he's trying to make good on some of the the concerns that he had. But just as Claire was saying, in so quote unquote, democratizing the checkmark by making people pay $8 and then creating this separate checkmark that's meant for like the most important of the important celebrities, you're reinstilling a hierarchy and a pay-to-play model for people who want to be considered important enough to have a check mark. So it's all kind of like all over the place and very, very mixed messaging. One just very small aside that I found funny when I was scrolling Twitter actually this morning is that for some of the great check marks that are in place, you can click on the check mark to see if the person is paying the subscription or if it is something that they have because they are a celebrity. So all of this to say is like the optics are kind of weird. The access to information is kind of weird. And strategically, it doesn't feel very sound. It's all just like, I want to do this thing. So that engineering team, let's do this thing. And then when they have it done, they're like, oh, maybe this isn't what I wanted to do all along. So it's kind of embarrassing to have a test and play strategy, you know, not in a smaller market like we've seen with like the TikToks and the Instagrams of the world and really rolled out to everyone and for everyone to judge and see. But yeah, all of that to say, it feels gut and not strategy. Go ahead, Claire. It is pretty dumb, like in general. But what I will say is a lot of times these massive platforms roll out a test and it doesn't work out and they have to roll it back and they end up looking really dumb because they were so serious about it and they made it seem so important. Like they knew it was going to work and then it didn't work. They ended up looking stupid. I think the whole Twitter situation is crazy, but the idea that these platforms are very fluid and they are really test and learn spaces is true. And I think something that people know, but we don't get to see like behind the curtain like that and the hiding and the opaque of the features and trials and beta tests and stuff makes things seem so much more serious than they are. So it may not necessarily be a bad thing to kind of let people see behind the curtain of the processes that go into creating things that people end up using every day on the platform. Transparency is typically a good thing, though it is making Elon seem sort of like a loose cannon um, or like he's not thinking things through. That's definitely true and it's like a perception issue that he'll have to work through or maybe he really just doesn't care which is also fine I guess I think the transparency part of it is not terrible though it is just sort of like a you know a cluster anyway yeah it's interesting I'm about to say a word I feel like we haven't said on this podcast in a couple of weeks but the blue check mark to me has NFT vibes like it only has the weight and the power that other people put on it and for some reason now I feel like it's losing some of that credibility right? And some of that weight that it once carried. All right, let's move right along. Daniel, tell us about what's going on over at TikTok with their new safety protocols. So after a brand safety summit at the beginning of November, TikTok has provided an overview of the safety tools in the form of a helpful infographic and how it uses these safety tools to keep teens safe 
from content and predators on the platform and from spending too much time with TikTok, which is a universal thing, not just for teens that people are spending way too much time on the platform, but all to say they are putting controls in place. So what are they doing? Parents and guardians have the ability to link their account, so the parent and guardian's accounts, to their teens and can manage whether their accounts are public or private, who can comment on their videos, who can message them, how much time they spend on the app, and what they can search. They also default younger users. So if you're a parent or guardian who has a teen on platform, you should feel a little bit comfortable. At least the account is defaulted to private. They are not really allowed to send or receive direct messages or go to a live stream. And they can only duet and collaborate with people that are their age. And lastly, they have resources of how to stay safe and avoid bad actors, essentially just advice lists for teens on the platform to use. So in the face, this is great. I'm happy to see that they're taking this seriously, understanding their younger audience and their responsibility to keep them safe on the platform. I can't help but think about AOL chat rooms, Omegle, chat roulette, Facebook early days, and the list goes on of the platforms that when I was a teen and coming up in the world, I would have benefited from being protected better and my safety online being taken more seriously. That said, these measures don't come out of nowhere. As an example, apparently on four occasions, Pakistan banned the app uh, because of inappropriate content. But heavy is the crown worn by the social media platform that holds the attention of the often hard to reach younger generation. So years ago, this was Instagram and Snapchat. The crown has kind of moved from head to head. It is now on TikTok's head. So they're taking this seriously. They probably haven't cracked it. They haven't solved all of the ills, but they're definitely taking good intentional steps in the right direction. Personally, if I were a teen, I would be mortified if my mom had linked her TikTok account to mine to have oversight of what I'm doing and what I'm allowed to do. But you know, in this day and age where everything has moved online, it's great that this capability exists for the parents that need this and the kids that need this support. This has a tangential relationship to brands in that it should give them confidence that TikTok for teens, advertising for teens, as well as just on the platform generally, are taking important cautionary measures to ensure brand safety and user safety. So if anything, it may make more brands more confident to advertise on the platform, particularly if they're going after that 13 to 17 audience, which is kind of the sweet spot of what TikTok at least originally was, even though it's now a lot more of a broad reach platform. You bring up a really good point about our safety when we were coming up on those same apps that you mentioned. And it makes me think like, I don't know that my parents would have known to have those apps. And I think what it actually says is, thank goodness that the generation that are currently parents know the internet and have grown up with it. So now can be safe for their kids. So Claire, you know, on this show, we love a good infographic because it reads so well on a podcast. But if you you had to pick one thing out of this that really jumped out to you, what do you think that would be and what would it be for brands? The thing that jumped out to me as someone who has authority issues is that parents can like get inside their kid's account. I understand the importance of that or at least the optics of it. But to be honest, to me, it's kind of weird. I don't love that as a concept. However, I think 
TikTok needs to do things like this to keep brands coming back to the platform. So I think more even than the benefit it'll have to children, it is, and maybe this is very cynical, but an effort to keep marketers engaged and um, give them the peace of mind that the platform is safe for all ages, specifically the ages brands might be trying to speak to, whose parents might not want them on the platform because of the safety issues. So yeah, I guess that's my two cents. But I I think that having parental controls on TikTok really only prevents a very specific kind of influence or like bad media because certain things can't even get uploaded to the platform to begin with. So I think, you know, protecting the DMs makes a lot of sense, but it's not necessarily like a content filter because the sort of stuff that the three, four of us were seeing on the internet in 2008 is still on there and it's not going to be on TikTok ever. So to me, it's more of an optics thing than anything else. Yeah, I think this ultimately good thing, but we will see. And I like your I like your theory or your view of the world when it comes to authority. All right. Instagram is rolling out a scheduling feature for creators and businesses. Tell us about it, Claire. Yeah, so not necessarily groundbreaking, but Instagram will have a feature soon that they're rolling out for professional accounts where you can schedule your posts. Those are grid posts and reels. It didn't seem like there's stories scheduling, which is sort of a miss to me as someone who works on accounts where people need to post a lot of stories. But uh, Instagram previously had post scheduling within the like creator suite, which as far as I can tell was actually like a separate website. So it's not an entirely new thing for creators and professional accounts, but it keeps scheduling within the app itself, which makes things a lot easier. What I think is interesting about this for brands and mostly for people who work for brands us is you can not use sprinkler if you want to or other post scheduling kind of dashboard platforms like that you know the scheduling aggregators of the world it is of course still very useful to keep all of your platforms in one place especially if you're scheduling kind of the same post out across different platforms, though that's not necessarily a best practice. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's not a groundbreaking change, but I think a lot of marketers do schedule things manually or post things manually because those aggregators aren't perfect. Um, so being able to do it within the app just makes things a lot easier. And especially for creators who work for themselves and don't have a team of ad people behind them, this will make life a lot easier. So Claire, you manage a brand online. Daniel, you do not. Is this exciting for you? And if you were a brand, hypothetical, would you later gram? I will admit it's not particularly exciting for me. I later gram anyways. I think that I think this is a trend actually of like younger Gen Z of like you live the experience, you take the photos and you post it later on. So that is very my vibe, even though I am very, very solidly in the middle of the millennial generation. But I think it it is a good thing, especially like, say, for example, this is kind of like a stupid example that comes to mind. You're going to a conference and you're at that conference for five days and you have a panel that your brand is speaking at on the first day, the third day, and the fifth day. But your brand managers and all the people that might be posting are involved in the conference and doing those things. This type of a thing would enable you to just like set it, forget it, enjoy, be present in the moment. So I think there's there's definitely a benefit to that. And for that to be natively on platform is great. I'm not super familiar with the sprinklers of the world or if there's some left to be desired. Doing so on platform 
allows you to be a little bit more nimble. Maybe you don't need to like change apps or anything like that. So I think it's all a positive and a benefit. The only question mark for me is like, why is it taking so long for them to do this? Because I feel like I heard about Hootsuite like back in 2010 or whatever. And that was some a capability back then. So it just feels kind of like, where have you guys been? But I'm glad it exists. Finally, Instagram showing some love for the community managers. All right. Speaking of meta products, let's wrap it up with our fifth thing today. Daniel, tell us what is up with WhatsApp and their communities. What is up with WhatsApp and their communities? I feel like the headline is a little bit more exciting than what the update actually looks like on the face. But let me talk through it and maybe we can get some excitement about it. So WhatsApp has just launched a new update around communities in keeping with closer social circles, social media, meaning that the people you interact with in a social setting is just people that you know, as opposed to the bigger socials of yesteryear. WhatsApp has unveiled a capability for chat admins to form communities. A community is essentially a way to organize related groups and chats and communicate and connect with them from a singular place. So say, for example, you're in a school and you have like the teachers that you need to communicate with, the custodians that you need to communicate with, and maybe the parents you need to communicate with. Some sort of like actual real community and you can organize different interests for those chats and people can, I think, opt into the particular areas of the chat that would be relevant to you. So it feels a little bit like Slack vibes, like you have this kind of uber community level and then within that sub interest chats that people can engage with and somebody at the top is sort of managing it. There's also some updates kind of tied to this community notion. You can attach bigger files. There are emoji reactions, which as a Teams user, I have very much appreciated what those look like. And group calls for a larger amount of people. This is all creating different ways to engage as well as create, dare I say, a community. It's interesting because you think of WhatsApp as a one-to-one or one-to-few communication application, but this seems to be kind of leaning into a potential for broader communication like a Slack or something like that. And I'm not sure if this is tied to it, but North America is actually the fastest growing region for WhatsApp. So it could be in light of some needs or desires from users in those markets. For brands, there has been very limited advertising potential with WhatsApp in the past, I believe. And Claire, keep me honest, it's been sort of you have a Facebook or an Instagram ad that leads to a chat on WhatsApp for one-to-one communication between a brand and a consumer, whether it be customer service related or engage with us for this particular thing. This may allow brands to kind of organize their chats and communicate one-to-many. I'm still not, as a user of the platform, fully seeing the potential of this, but it is good for the, the users on the app to create a bigger community and organize the chats that they have with related groups of people. All right, Claire, million-dollar question. Are people going to use this? Honestly, probably. WhatsApp is huge, especially not in the US. Everybody I know who does not live in the United States is on WhatsApp for basically everything. That's what their texting is. And I think based on all of the other things we talked about, based on everything else we talked about today, when it comes to the platforms that everybody is using, I think different ways to connect with people are going to be particularly useful in the coming years as Facebook, Twitter change a lot. So I think that new avenues for connection opening up within already popular platforms or even outside of those platforms is something we're going to see a lot more. I know there was a lot of talk 
about Discord and that other one that is similar during the kind of Twitter shakeup, like are people going to be migrating elsewhere for, you know, shared content, um, content that's grouped by interests, stuff like that. So I, I think that this could be very usable and we'll just continue to see new, you know, group chat type social media type things crop up. Yeah, it could be very exciting. All right, friends. Well, there was a lot to discuss today. There's a lot going on in the world of social. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, like us, review us, write to us with your questions, comments, concerns, points of interest or complaints, or if there's something we missed, let us know and we will discuss it. You can do all of that by emailing us at podcasts at gray.com. Of course, I want to thank Claire and Daniel for joining us today for this discussion. And as always, thanks to Danielle Hunt, Amanda Fuentes, and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios. And finally, thank you, listener. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by Christina Hyde and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.